Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Good afternoon, folks. My name is Jim Sklavunas. You're listening to Soho Radio. We just heard a set of recent releases from Down Under. Let me tell you exactly what they were. Tang by Dave Graney and Claire Moore from their new album, Into the Mistly. Do you know what Tang is? It's a uh, very retro kind of soft drink. It's orange-flavored, orange-colored. And it comes in powdered form. You add water and stir it with a spoon. Used to drink it when I was a kid. Tastes awful. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it still exists, but it's renowned for being the astronaut's drink of choice on early NASA flights. Uh, So that's maybe what the song is about. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's called Tang, and it's by Dave Graney and Clara Moore from their new album, Into the Mistly. Before that, The War Won, a track from Harry Howard Presents Slight Pavilions. Harry Howard was a member of Crime in the City Solution and These Immortal Souls, alongside his brother Roland S. Howard. And for the past 10 years, he's fronted his own band, Harry Howard and the Near Death Experience. And once again, that track was The War One, a track from Harry Howard Presents Slight Pavilions. Mess-esque is Dirty Three's Mick Turner in collaboration with singer-songwriter Helen Franzman, a.k.a. McKisco. The track you heard, Armor, You're a More, is their latest 7-inch single, and you can get that along with their self-titled album, on Bandcamp. Let me just spell that for you. Mess-esque. M-E-S-S-E-S-Q-U-E. Mess-esque. Kind of like burlesque, but messy. And at the top of that set, Greater Silence, a track from James Johnston and Steve Gullick's new album, Everybody's Sunset, which is also available on Bandcamp. 
Author Carol Morin has a new book out, Flesh World. It's a sort of speculative science fiction novel. I'm going to talk to her in just a little bit. A little later on in the show, I'll be interviewing musician Dean Fertitta about his new project and release, Tropical Goth Club. Dean Fertitta has played and recorded with a host of notables, including The Dead Weather, Queens of the Stone Age, The Raconteurs, Karen O, Beck, Iggy Pop, as well as his own bands, Wax Wings, Hello Equals Fire, and now Tropical Goth Club. We will hear all about Tropical Goth Club and Dean Fertitta in the second half of today's show. But first, Carol Morin's going to read the opening passage from her new book, Flesh World, and then she and I will have a little chat. And as per Carol's personal request, here's a little bit of Blondie to ease us all in. longed to be safe. Even after inventing the vaccine, I didn't feel safe. Was I programmed to expect the worst? On the surface, her cruelty made me strong. But inside, I'm broken. I have lost my soul. I know that something irreparable will happen. Something that I can't fix. It's only a matter of time. Injecting myself with safe every morning can't protect me. The crone cut me, leaving her mark. That wasn't it. It's something else. Something worse. Waiting for me in the black hole, separating pure world from flesh world. Fulfilling her prophecy of doom. Every day I think about it, knowing it will come for me, knowing it will get me. Impossible to escape. Suddenly I stopped thinking about catastrophe. Stopped seeing the scissors attacking my secret part. That's not true. It wasn't sudden. After marrying Ice, I thought about her. And before I married her, I obsessed about how I could have her. I was distracted, perfecting my product, becoming even richer, protecting my beautiful Ice, keeping her safe. Even my sex scar stopped throbbing. Ice changed everything. She never betrayed her perfection. She played her part (laughs) until she disappeared. My fear has been hidden for so long, I imagined it no longer existed. Hiding inside me with memories of mother, the cackle creeping out of her that night she marked me. Now all my scabs are on display. Fear consumes me. Covers my flesh with its vapour, preparing to expose me. Fear I will never find my wife. Fear I will find her too late. She will no longer be my perfect ice. What if it's already too late? She's infected. 
and the dread living inside me, odourless and sinister as the mist coming off the lake, circling our bubble. She will discover my secret. She will find out what I've done. She will know what I am. Recoil from me in disgust. She will hate me, hate me, hate me. Why didn't I take ice to my island? We could be in Utopia now, drinking martinis safe in the blue glow of sea and stars, away from people and evil. Why did I do nothing except wait for fate to strike? Now it is too late. Ice is gone, lost. My nightmare is real. There's no end to my quest. Yeah, I cannot stop beginning. That was critically acclaimed author Carol Morin reading from her new book, Flesh World, and she was reading in the character of the protagonist, Rich Powers. Starting with her first novel, Lampshades, she's had several books published. I'll just rattle them off here. Dead Glamorous, Penniless in Park Lane, and Spying on Strange Men. Flesh World is her latest publication. Carol, welcome to the show. Hello, Jim. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> You're most welcome. Carol, is it fair to say that Flesh World could be described as a dystopian science fiction? It has been described as that. Well, that's a good thing, then. <laughs> I'm off to a good start. <laughs> I think of it as being speculative, so it's set in the near future in London. Right. And I like the flexibility of putting something in the future. It's the first book I've done like that, and it's got more possibilities for my imagination because I can change anything that I don't like about London. And... <laughs> well, where do you start? <laughs> so I put a black hole in the middle. I divided it in two. I split it into two, and one side of it is flesh world and one side is pure world. Flesh world is really hot and sexy, and pure world is cold and repressed. Flesh world... The hot and sexy part of it, it wasn't that unfamiliar to me. It, it seemed all too uh, reminiscent of sort of dens of iniquity and sexual meccas of the 70s, like Times Square and Soho and places like that. It wasn't unfamiliar at all. Well, I live in Soho, and I think that the old Soho, the Soho that uh, I heard about in my childhood from when my uncle that worked in Soho Vice mm -hmm. and all the, you know, the kind of glamour and sex and the, the gangsters and it all sounded really exciting and when I was young growing up in Glasgow I always wanted to go and live in Soho so I think that that is part of my imagination, it's my imaginative way of seeing the world when mm -hmm. I go out and walk around, you know, in London there's a memory in every street you're kind of in the present, but you could also be in the past or the near yeah. future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, London's very much like that. When did you move to Soho? I've lived here for a bit more than 10 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it had already changed quite a bit by that point. It's changed a lot, but I think that cities, they change. They have to almost change to stay the same even. Yeah. Uh, before that, we lived in Beijing and... It was quite exciting when we first went there, and now it's it's changed in a kind of bad way. It's got a bit bland and yeah. Americanized, but <laughs> we being you and your husband Don. That's right, my husband Don. Yeah, and what were you doing in Beijing? Well, Don was working 
doing his secret spy work, and I was um, <laughs> I was you writing heard it here novels. first. <laughs> I was writing my books, Fine and Strange Men. So, uh-huh. and I find um, when I work on each one of my books, I've normally done it away from home. I find it quite useful, particularly at the first draft stage when I'm writing something, to be like away from my own possessions and to focus completely on doing mm-hmm. from the conception of the book until what I think of as when I say finished, I mean finished pre-editing and rewrites. And But I like to get that first draft in a coherent whole. So doing a book in China where the language, everyone around me was speaking Mandarin, I didn't have the distraction of all the kind of, you know, Englishness, English stuff in my head. I often listen to Chinese music when I'm working as well for that mm-hmm. same reason, that the words don't really intrude to the same level. Do you speak any Mandarin? I speak functional, like... You can order off a menu. I can order, I can tell my driver where I want to go, though sometimes I'll say, you know, Nabian, and actually I mean Dabian, so uh-huh. instead of saying stop over there, I'm saying I need to shit urgently. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not, Don is, you know, he's completely fluent, but, you know, I'm, I'd am i say I'm functional. Mm-hmm. I know how to shout rude things like insults, like, you know. May your child be born without a butthole and stuff like that. But <laughs> only in extreme that circumstances. That comes in handy, doesn't it? <laughs> in a foreign land. Yeah, that's exactly what skill set you need. Being not around, the familiar. Does it help with the creative process or the work discipline or both? I think for me, the discipline, because I don't really have trouble with the ideas part of books. Mm-hmm. It's more like the focusing and... I think if the first draft is quite coherent, it requires a lot less editing later. And I think that the thinking stage, which I used to think was a laziness thing, Mm -hmm. like pre-starting is actually quite important because, you know, you're kind of forming it in your head. So when I get the characters and the setting, the setting's quite important to me also. Same with if I'm watching a movie, if I don't like the setting, then Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, respond as well. So I'll get the characters, I'll get the setting, I'll get the voice. And once I've got that right, Mm -hmm. the book sort of almost writes itself. The characters sometimes take over. And I don't really like to know what's going to happen in the first draft. Mm -hmm. Later when I'm editing, I rewrite, you know, about a million times. And then obviously I know exactly what's happening then and it's all about structure. But the first draft, yeah, if I'm away from, it was completely by accident that this method of working came about. I was commissioned to do my first book and I had a tubercular tool, which is apparently quite unusual. Mm-hmm. I was the only person since medical records began who'd ever had tuberculosis confined to my tool. So I was having to sort of stay in bed a lot because when I went out, I had to hop. You know, I was on one foot and I couldn't. And um, I was commissioned to write a novel, which would be quite unusual now, but in that time, publishing was in a bit of a boom. Mm -hmm. I'd had some short stories published, and I got commissioned to do this novel. And then um, the manuscript was stolen. Well, my computer was stolen, and the manuscript was on it, and I hadn't printed it out. And I had to reconstruct it quite quickly. And then just by chance, I got invited to Hawthornden Castle, which is a writer's retreat in Scotland. And I went there, and for three months, I just out of memory, out of my head, I reconstructed the book. And it was great for focusing on that. The castle was out in the middle of nowhere. There was the hours of silence. We weren't allowed to talk between breakfast and dinner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There was some, like, you know, quite strict, you know, administrator who was enforcing this rule. It was a horsehair bed. There was... Sounds like a monastery. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it, it was very good for writing. Uh, one of the writers who was there ran away, couldn't take it. But because my manuscript had gone missing and I had a deadline for handing it in and, you know, I was a bit panicked about that, just getting up every day, writing the book, it just worked for me. So mm-hmm. the next time I was commissioned to do my second book as well, and this time I thought, I don't think I don't think the horsehair mattress is going to work <laughs> for me this time. So I managed to get a suite at the Ritz, the Judy yeah. Garland suite in the Ritz, which was comp, which was nice. And I wrote the second one in there, Dead Glamorous. And the, the Ritz kind of worked its way into it because I was there and, you know, yeah, yeah. I had the Judy Garland suite. So it was sort of, it was okay. And so I've basically, I've carried on with that tradition where possible, where if I'm doing a first draft, I just get away from the distraction of my right. life and get it done. But the editing bit, I can do that at home. You know, I can do yeah, that yeah. anywhere, really. Yeah, yeah. I've only read Flesh World, Spying on Strange Men, and I'm nearly done with Penniless in Park Lane. But I've understood from your Wikipedia page <laughs> and uh, various interviews you've done that there's a suspiciously autobiographical undercurrent to your work, which is quite ambiguous, which may or may not be actually based on anything in your life, but it always seems like it could be. What's the deal with that? Are you purposely playing with the idea of any autobiographical elements integrated into your work, or is that completely erroneous, or do you have uh, any well, kind of... Well, Dead Glamorous was the most autobiographical. That's 90% true, mm-hmm. and it's about my mother inheriting my grandfather's money and the impact of that. My brother committed suicide. And when I say it's 90% true, I mean, because it's not a woe fest, it's not a, you know, poor old me, you know, mm-hmm. I had this evil mum and my brother died and my dad was an alcoholic. I've kind of turned it into a drama, into a story. Mm-hmm. And I've edited out the boring bits and I've given it a structure. And to an extent, that is what you do when you write fiction, because who else would it be about other than me? Because I'm the person writing it. But Flesh World is very different. I wouldn't say that was autobiographical. Well, first of all, there's the main character, yeah. Rich Powers, which is... Um, and he's a man. Is a man, yeah. But somebody did say to me, um, one of the first people who read it, who stayed up all night reading it, said, I can't believe you're not a man. I can't believe you're not a man. <laughs> because I don't want to do a spoiler, but there's the sequence with the man almost gets an important part of his anatomy chopped off. And just basically quite a few people have said to me, and a lot of the reviews this time mm-hmm. um, in the newspapers and also just um, people reading it have been by men. Mm-hmm. I think there's only been about two by women. Um, so men seem to be really responding to this one and yeah he isn't me because I'm not a man but there's another character in Ice and another one Trash mm-hmm. um, Ice being the uh, the wife and yeah she's the Ice Trash well the, na- <laughs> the name Trash says White. it all <laughs> Trash White so um <laughs> John, my husband, whom you know, um, he says that everyone will think that ice is me, Mm -hmm. that people won't think that trash or rich are me, they'll think ice is me. And I think to an extent, you know, I can see that. But again, you know, there's bits of her past that aren't actually mine. But Mm -hmm. um, he said they're so authentic that he was reading them and wondering himself if I had secrets that he didn't know about. Right, right. <laughs> that I dredged up yeah, to Yeah, because the, uh, the book is very much about secrets and uh, self-loathing and I a very I, convoluted I think sort Rich, of psychology. Rich has a kind of self-loathing. I don't think the female characters do as such. I think he's had that instilled in him by his evil mother. 
and she's obviously still in his head talking to him throughout and he has difficulty shaking her off no matter how successful he is, no matter how much money he makes or, you know, marrying his his perfect wife and he just basically, he can't shake off this perverse past that he's had. He finds it difficult to... And there's a lot of narrative ambiguity in there that where you're not quite sure what the real story is from point to point, and a lot of that is driven by Rich's recountings, um, Well, again, with, projections. with Flesh World, I, I think it's quite straightforward. I mean, it's a page-turner, but it's got a dark side. Certainly Spying on Strange Men, I think there's a lot of ambiguity. <laughs> it's not really even clear to some people at the end whether the character is alive or not, except mm-hmm. she came to life and she now actually appears in the real world. She stands in for me sometimes, mm-hmm. the Vivian Lash character, when I'm right. just too busy or whatever. So <laughs> she's she's still with us. I think that Flesh World, for me, is quite straightforward. I think one of the reviews said it was writing degree zero, and I can sort of see that like it's a different style from my other books as well, which are maybe a little bit more poetic. Yeah, yeah. And you've had, of course, quite an interesting life, I've gleaned. Really? And uh, (laughs) Well, a lot of strange celebrity encounters, lived all over the world, been a junior diplomat. Ever thought about writing an autobiography? I don't think I'd write a straight autobiography because my mum always says that I make up lies for a living. (laughs) And I think that I've I've been writing from when I was a small child. Mm -hmm. We used to get this thing in school. It was a diary, but the teacher called it the news book. But Mm -hmm. the news was all about you. And I'd take mine in in the morning and the rest of the class would want to hear what was in my news book. And the teacher who had a secret affair with my dad was dying to she would go through it she would always have a hangover and she'd sit at her desk reading my newsbook asking for an Alka-Seltzer looking for bits <laughs> about my dad in the newsbook so I started embellishing you know right. and putting like sort of reinventing my dad a little bit and sort of changing so that it's basically something I've always done even when I've been writing things that are true I do a column, Shall I Not Stupid, which is done by Vivian Lash, the character from Spying on Strange Men. And, you know, it's not invented. It's about stuff. It's about cultural stuff. Where's the column uh, run? It's on this American website called Hint, Hint Mag, mm-hmm. uh, by, done by a guy called Lee Carter. Mm-hmm. It's a fashion website, but he just lets me do whatever I want. It works quite well. I'm not saying I make things up, Michelle, not stupid, because I was a fiction writer first. It's got a narrative structure to it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a story. So I'll go to an art show or something, but I tell it like a story. And the people that I interact with when I'm out, I kind of almost turn into characters. Mm -hmm. So if I was writing about this, I'd be meeting this tall American guy. (laughs) You know, and I'd, I'd, I'd... give you a bit of a twist you mm-hmm. wouldn't just be Jim you my friend's husband to, you Jim you'd be very you know. hard <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in flesh world that was reminiscent to me of that sort of Cronenberg type body horror sci-fi icky feeling do you see this potentially being any sort of film adaptation a few people have have mentioned that it's a movie waiting to happen I think Cronenberg has been mentioned by one of the reviewers and it was actually Don who recommended Crash to Cronenberg. He um, oh, yeah. 
interviewed him and they were in a cab on the way to the airport and he was saying this road reminds me of Crash Mm -hmm. and at that point Cronenberg hadn't heard of the Bauer book and he later made the film Crash they had a long discussion about it so when um, I hadn't consciously thought of it when I was writing Flesh World but when the reviewer said you know it's it's like a Cronenberg film I said to Don you've got to get on to him and recommend Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and there's a there's another director who's reading it at the moment and you know I think there was a lot of interest in Dead Glamorous as a movie it was optioned multiple times and I did the screenplay and for one reason or another it didn't happen you know people don't have budgets and mm. waiting for real life characters to die so they won't get sued different things like that so I think yeah I mean I could see Flesh World definitely as a movie and I would like to write the script because I'm good at writing scripts All right. <laughs> <laughs> actually there I just remember there's some uh, story about you, you and the famous director, Stanley Kubrick. Some story about you um, winning a dessert eating contest with uh, him? Yes, see, when I first came to London, I was homeless and I uh, had this friend who was in one of Stanley's movies and the friend was sleeping in Hyde Park. I don't know if you know, there's these trees in Hyde Park that are hollow in the middle and they've got people living in them. No, I don't know about <laughs> this. <laughs> well, That's handy. Uh, <laughs> the friend was living in one of these but it didn't just didn't suit me. So um, I booked into the Columbia Hotel, which was opposite, right, pretty yes. much opposite where these trees were. And then Stanley heard that, you know, we were these two little homeless people. So he kind of, because he was quite a nice guy, he invited us to go and live in a caravan on the set. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a particularly glamorous caravan. You know, we're not talking, you know, the place where the, the star goes to seduce the, you know, whatever. But it was it was sort of nice of him and it was quite interesting. I wasn't in the movie, but obviously all the people who were in the movie would eat in the commissary. And What I, movie was it? It was Full Metal Jacket. All right. And I, um, you know, used to just go in there and eat because, you know, um, <laughs> and in those days I, I used to eat a lot of chocolate and sort of sugary things and stuff. And he would have like millions of desserts on his tray. Like I think he was some sort of sugar junkie. And I would just win, you know, however many he had, I could always eat more. And I was like six and a half stone at the time. And people would be like, what is she doing with that? You know, what's she doing with that food? Um, so that was me beating him. But I um, used to write short stories and I'd sort of, you know, just sort of sit there writing. And he read one of them called Killing Dogs. And he said, you should write a movie. You should write a movie. Mm-hmm. And I'd always intended to write a movie, but I got sidetracked with all these novels and things. <laughs> and they're very distracting. <laughs> but I'm good, at, I'm good at dialogue and I'm good at characters. And it's massively easier writing a screenplay than a novel. It's so simple, like, you know. How do you figure? It's easy when you're adapting, especially your own book. And if you're quite ruthless and you're going to check out all the stuff that wouldn't work visually... It's just simple. You've got the structure already. You know what the plot is. You're All you're doing is putting it into pictures, basically, and adding some dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's using a very different bit of the brain. For me, it was quite easy. And you get paid every time you do a draft. Even if they don't make the movie, you keep getting paid and getting paid and getting paid. And then you can buy yourself a flat and so on. Sounds <laughs> wonderful. We should all be scriptwriters. It's almost better if they don't make the movie because then it gets optioned again and again and again. And, you know, here you are years later and it's, you know. But, yeah, it's Flesh World anyway. I can, I'm doing a sequel now, so I can see that as maybe because we're moving away from movies into these, you know, serials. And I think I can see it as a serial. Yeah, right. I can see it. The setting, the characters, the 
And like you said, it's universal, you know, it's um it might be set in the near future, but like all the kind of sex stuff like reminds you of New York because that's where you lived and at that time somebody else it might remind them of Berlin back when it was decadent or Hamburg, the Raperbahn, yeah. <laughs> or Soho when it was decadent or whatever. Yeah. So it's just a decadent world. So it's something that anyone can identify with it at any sure time. It sure is a decadent world. <laughs> <laughs> Only have to look at the headlines to figure that out. <laughs> Where can one acquire Flesh World? I well, mean the book, not not the, uh, the location. The best place to get it is obviously my website, Carol Moran, UK, because then you get a signed and numbered one. Oh, and okay. It's best for me anyway. And if you don't want to buy it there, you can get it from a bookshop or Amazon or any of those places where people buy books. So. Right. So that's C-A-R-O-L-E-M-O-R-I-N.co.uk? That's it. That's the one. Yeah. And are you doing an audio book? Have you done an audio book? I did an audio book of Spying and Strange Men. Mm-hmm. And... I really like reading and I like doing performances, but it took up such a lot of time. Mm. And I think it would be a while before I did another audiobook. <laughs> but definitely, like, I love doing readings and, you know, on the radio or just on stage or wherever. Mm. But just the audiobook, I kind of did most of it in one take, but it still seemed to take like a weirdly long time. I was going to the studio every week for, seemed like about a year, but couldn't really have been as long as that. Yeah. <laughs> So that's on Apple Music. Being in the studio <laughs> does sometimes feel like <laughs> like a prison sentence. And Don did Mr. Lash in that, the male character. And uh-huh. he's very good at reading too. It was actually him that taught me how to read. So you know, he's my director when I do performances. Excellent. Carol, thank you for coming down to the studio today. Thank you, Jim. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you can get Flesh World on Carol Morin's website. That's C-A-R-O-L-E-M-O-R-I-N dot co dot U-K. Or you can buy it where? Well, anywhere. Anywhere. (laughs) Amazon, wherever. But it's best to buy it from me because then you get signed a number copy. It's published by Dragon Inc. And uh, yeah, go to your local booksellers and demand it. (laughs) 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 And Carol, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Jim. And bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. Ken, I talk to you for a minute. Got a cigarette a for talk. me, Mr. Hall? Hey, mister, do you speak Spanish? Hey, You're Tiger, you want to dance? Little dance won't hurt you. Come here, cowboy, I want to tell you mushy, something. Mushy, mushy, cut it, you, baby. Ooh, you're so tall. Let's have some fun. <laughs> <laughs>